0: I don't know how many of you noticed the cartoon on the bulletin board. But there's this sense, if we're honest with ourselves, that we, we want freedom now. The cartoon says, sort of a typical protest situation, and one of the monks is, what do we want? And they all shout back, mindfulness. When do we want it? Now. And uh, what do we want? Well, we want freedom. I mean, we might have different ways of responding, but basically we want relief. There was that ad campaign for a while about relief. forget what it was. How, was do, you it a, how do you spell relief? I mean, that's what we want, and we want that relief now. Like even wanting relief from needing relief. So it's okay. The, the Part of this is okay because it makes it really immediate. And uh, the basic wrong move is to think about our existential uneasiness of heart in a theoretical way. Like, Theoretically speaking, I'm wondering I'm wondering what I'm doing wrong. What's wrong with the world? Instead of a more direct and immediate looking or opening. So this is the theme for this retreat, and we began maybe you remember, and I put it up on the bulletin board, this quote from Thoreau, where he says, Silence. Is the universal refuge. So just curious what he means, what his what is his experience of silence? He's using that word silence, and for him it points to an actual experience. And as we all know, words aren't often good. So does he mean by silence that? which is unconstructed, that which is profoundly simple and unconstructed. And he says that this universal refuge is the sequel to all dull discourses and foolish acts, a balm to our every shragin, as welcome after satiation, as after disappointment, that background which the painter may not daub, be he master or bungler, and which, however awkward a figure we may have made in the foreground, remains ever our inviolable asylum, where no indignity can assail, no personality disturb us. Imagine if we looked at the present moment, you know as many of those moments during retreat, during our lives, with that attitude or that confidence that what we're looking for is here and now, in some form, some way. Like the Buddha says, the mind, the heart is radiant and pure. However, it's obscured, this radiance, this purity is obscured by visiting defilements, torments of the mind. At the end of the May retreat I was at, at IMS with Saida Utejaniya, this wonderful Burmese monk and teacher, and he's the one who he didn't write those books. They're just transcriptions of the Q&A sessions. He doesn't really give Dharma talks very often. He just does Q&A sessions with groups of about 15 people for a couple hours. He does that several times a day for the different groups. So every three or four days you get to sit down with them in a small group. And then they just, somebody transcribes them and edits them and that's what has made up these books. And uh, anyway, at the end of his retreat in May, the two-week retreat that I was at, he was just uh, offering his good wishes to all of us and he said his deepest wish for us is that we would appreciate how valuable the continuity of awareness is or how powerful or how transforming it is. He says the reason, he goes, the reason why people don't make the effort that then leads to developing the continuity of awareness and then, and therefore the transfer, transformation of their lives is they don't know the value. They can't fathom the value of this kind of balanced, clear, relaxed, Continuous awareness. And in this business, you know, this tradition, we like to say that it's the most powerful thing in the world. I remember way back, who knows when, um, but just studying basic science in high school, I think, and just talking about water as the universal solvent, you know, and then pointing to different Places in the earth, on the earth where water over time has done amazing feats, like carved the Grand Canyon or this or that. Evidently the Appalachian Mountains were once higher than the Himalaya Mountains. So now I think Mount Washington in New Hampshire maybe is around five or six thousand feet. Most of them are four thousand or much less. So Mount Everest is what, 28 thousand feet or something like that? That's a lot of erosion. (laughs) And what did that? The water did that. So in psychological terms, this balanced, clear, relaxed, and continuous awareness is what can undo, no matter how substantial the edifice of our worrying mind or our neurotic self, conscious tendencies or defensive tendencies, inflated tendencies, depressive tendencies, no matter how well entrenched these habits are, how they seem to re-arise over and over, even though we know better, nothing is more powerful than this simple, clear, Natural, it's not a, the awareness that we're uncovering, if it's really going to do the work, it has to be in the direction of what's unconstructed. Right? Mm-hmm. If it's a constructed awareness, meaning there's a somebody with an agenda, an expectation, somebody using the awareness as a tool, then that gets in the way of the simplicity and the clarity and the relaxation of that awareness. So it can't really do its job effectively. This is also from Saito Utejaniya. A a yogi, a retreat, is asking, what do we do Though, uh, what do we do though if the mind has, ne- uh, has neither had this kind of understanding nor developed a genuine interest in the practice? Right? So I'm assuming, uh, that he's responding to this sort of comment that Sai is making about his wish that people understood the value of the practice so that they would make the effort, the appropriate effort. It's not a muscular effort. It's really the effort of remembering, to remember, to be aware, in this continuous way. And then the so the retreatant asks, "Well, what do we do though if the mind has neither has neither had this kind of understanding nor developed a genuine interest in the practice?" And he answers, "Then we need, we just need to keep plodding on until we really understand what we are doing. It is absolutely vital that we recognize the value of awareness itself." We need to value the actual work of being aware. We need to understand that this activity brings results because it's such a specific activity. I'm sure a lot of you will recognize this. You know, what I've learned in my practice over the years so much of what I've learned over the years is all of the... Ego moves to practice is not the way. I mean, it's like over and over and even in the last 24 hours being here and, you know, doing my best to practice in a continuous way. And uh, I'm still catching myself trying to meditate as opposed to recognizing the knowing mind recognizing that the knowing mind is already knowing, that the objects of experience are already being known. And any neurotic tendencies that have been set in motion, they also can be known. It's really hard because we've been reinforced as a beast trying to survive, both in physical terms, having enough food and shelter and... And in psychological terms, being liked, having power, dealing with what feels like psychological threats, being judged, being talked about, hitting ourselves, hitting oneself. So, uh, we're dealing with these threats all the time. But in any moment, we can recognize, well that's, this is how it is. This is just what's being known. That silence that Thoreau points to, the unformed awareness. We don't want to make it into something. We just want to take refuge in it. We don't want to call it our true self. We just want to recognize it or remember it. Remember that knowing is already happening. So in this practice we're emphasizing our subjective experience now, not some theoretical experience we have as human beings we're not generalizing, but we're appreciating that right now there is this experiencing, this subjective experiencing. And this is relevant because it's in the context of subjective experiencing that we experience suffering, stress, fear, tightness of body and mind, all of the different torments or afflictions. They're all in the context of subjective experiencing, right? But isn't it so interesting how we want to objectify when we study dukkha, suffering, study our situation, we want to objectify it as if it's out there and think about it as if it's out there. Like we would study anything. But for this particular kind of work, the spiritual work, we have to, because it's so much based on truth, the alignment, we have to begin with the reality that we are living a subjective experience. It's a very personal thing that's going on here. So even though we're in community, My experience of community is a very personal subjective thing right now. It may be like yours, it may not. We may never know how similar or different our subjective experiences are. But if I'm honest with myself, it's this subjective experience, experiencing, because it's an activity, that's relevant. And When we say that it's just the subjective experiencing that's relevant, you see how in motion it is. Like I'm not interested in the subjective experiencing a moment ago or what's to come. It's the dynamic right now of subjective experiencing. This is where dukkha either arises or doesn't arise. And what's interesting, you know, in any moment of subjective experiencing, there's both something being known and the knowing of that something being known. Now, we can't separate those two things, but it's really useful to recognize both both of those things. So right now, we're all in the middle of subjective experiencing, And there's something being known. And that something being known, of course, is being known. So there's the knowing of the something being known. And the question is, that knowing of the something being known, what is it adding? Is it adding anything? Skewing it? Distorting it? Or not? Is the knowing simple, clear, relaxed, not charged, and continuous? Or something else? Sporadic? Tilted or distorted? Aggressive or fearful holding back? And it turns out that This, in terms of understanding the experience of dukkha and the release from dukkha or stress, that it's more relevant in terms of our developing freedom, it's more relevant to better understand the knowing than what's being known. So like somebody now, their subjective experiencing might include pain in the knee, throbbing, twisting, burning in the knee. I can feel it in my knee. And I may, you know, conventionally, I might think, well, that's really what's important. But what's really important, what turns out to be really important, is the way those, those sensations of pressure or aching or throbbing or whatever, the way they're being known, the quality of knowing, what is the quality of knowing? Because we have a way of collecting bad data, you know knowing in ways that uh, don't really represent the facts on the ground. And then that bad data, if you know anything about statistics, you know, it doesn't matter how clever your statistical models are, if you have bad data, you're not going to get any kind of insight into what's going on. So it's really important that we create, we set a motion, a process or a way of being, that is going to collect good data. And it doesn't really matter, you know, what's being known, because all data, all points of data, all contacts or experiences that we have will teach the mind, teach the heart what it needs to know. We don't need a particular bodily experience like We need knee pain. I need a lot of physical discomfort in order to realize the underlying truths and be free. People in the suburbs, people in privileged situations, they can't have insight. Or people you know who are being oppressed can't have insight because you know this they're too difficult or something like that. No, the The only thing that really matters isn't so much (coughs) what's being known, but is it possible for that person to collect good data, to be knowing in a simple, clear, relaxed, and continuous way? Because if they can, then they can have insight, and insight leads to freedom. And if they can't, then they can't have insight. And this is really um, empowering, I think, because, you know, like some people in the community, they have young kids, and it's not so easy to get on retreats. And then it's so easy to think, well, or even sit every day, let alone go on a residential retreat. And then it's so easy to think, well, I'll just have to pick it up later when my kids are 28, And (laughs) done with school and done with living at home. Maybe it's 38 now, I don't know. Then I'll get my practice going again. Because that's a, you know, that's a real setup for, you know, missing our appointment with life. So here on retreat, we have all these different skillful means. We have our meals. We have our yogi jobs. We have our sitting time, sitting inside time, sitting outside time, walking inside, walking outside, avoiding practice, practice, studying practice, reading Saita's book reflecting on the teachings, practice. So all these different types of medicine. And again, we could think that it's about the objects of knowing. But it might be more like, in terms of skillful means, what activity we choose to do. Go upstairs, have a cup of tea. Go sit outside by the lake, go into the meditation hall and sit, go do some walking, do some fast walking, do some slow walking, do some mindful yoga or tai chi. So we might think that you know the particular activity is the medicine, but a more accurate way to think about it is what activity will allow or support that purity of knowing. So we're choosing the activity that is most likely to allow the mind to come into this balance where the knowing is simple and clear and relaxed and to some degree at least continuous. Because the activity itself doesn't matter what matters in the sense of what leads to insight is the continuity of mindful awareness. So you can even ask yourself that question, you know, like when you have some choices in front of you. I wonder what activity now would support the arising and continuity of this balanced, clear, relaxed, continuous Presence. I wonder. You know, and then you do something, you choose, and you see how that works. Is that helping or not? Some of you might remember Ajahn Poonidhamma, who comes down, usually in December, to teach at Common Ground. He'll be coming, again, coming down again this December, I think the second weekend in December. And he has a way of teaching mindfulness of breathing that I think is in line with what I've been saying. So he says something like, instead of this idea that I have to bring my attention to the breath, I have to connect and sustain, it's more about take the mind. He doesn't use this phrase exactly, but I I think it's what he means taking refuge in this knowing. The mind is already knowing, right? Isn't your mind already knowing? Things are being known already. Can you stop that? We can't stop it. So, can we take refuge, trust the mind that's knowing, and understand it as a kind of space, or an open field? an open field of knowing, awareness. And in that open space of knowing, awareness, notice how the breath arises there. Where else could it arise? Where else could any object of experience arise except in the space of knowing? If it doesn't arise in the space of knowing, it quite literally doesn't exist for us as subjective experiencers, right? Because in terms of subjective experiencing, the only thing that matters are those objects that arise in the field or space of awareness. So we can, and you see how this evokes a more relaxed, effortless kind of practice. Even if initially we're just Basing this on information, like it's not even now for you, your direct experience, this ongoing, the ongoingness of knowing, the effortless of knowing as a natural ongoing process of the mind, knowing. But just even in terms of information, like hearing it conceptually, we can just Check it out, right? Practice with mindfulness of breathing or whatever kind of anchor you train with. Practice relaxing into the space of knowing, the space of awareness, and see if the object, your anchor, see if that naturally arises there so that the meditator who is usually putting their attention on the object, going to the object, that can be relaxed. Now all of a sudden it starts to be seen as extra, sort of even, you could say, a neurotic, an unnecessary neurotic activity. Oh, not only do I not need to go to the breath, the sensations of the breath, I never had to go to the sensations of the breath. It was always just a pretend. I was pretending that I had to go to the breath. And then I pretended that when I had that intention to go to the breath, I actually, as the knower, covered some distance and then arrived at the breath. And that sneaky breath then moved, so I had to then go there to get the breath. And then, and it's sneaky and it's tricky and it's a lot of work to keep going to the breath. <laughs> And this should sound familiar because we do this a lot in life where we make things into struggles because our world view is that life is a struggle. And you know how that is where we need things to fit what we think is true. I have this in terms of running Common Ground, this idea that it's a struggle, it's difficult to run an organization. And some of you have your own versions of that with your particular job or raising children or dealing with family of origin issues or partner issues or whatever. It's not easy being married. It's not easy... And you can just fill in the blank. And these are some of the things we believe in more than anything else. And so... You know, our conventional mind, it demands consistency. Like, if I really think that's true, then my experience should fit that truth. So we then make the relationship, make the job, make taking care of the body difficult. We paint a picture, construct a story so that it fits the idea It isn't easy. So that's why, like, even when we come on retreat, sometimes depends what we've been told or what has developed in our own mind. If you've been on a lot of retreats, we come with a lot of baggage. So, this is how we imprison ourselves. So it's just a question of whether we're willing to own that and start over again. Okay, there is this subjective experiencing. Knowing is an essential part of the subjective experiencing. Objects are being known. How objects are being known turns out to be pretty relevant. I'm going to get interested in that, I'm going to get interested in that with continuity so I see cause and effect. When I'm knowing experience in this way, colored my knowing, colored in this way, this is how the heart ends up being entangled. When I'm knowing experience in this other way, like after the loving-kindness reflection this afternoon, maybe there was some residual kindness just seeing things in that light as you left and went about dinner. And then maybe things unfolded differently because of the attitude, the way of knowing, the way of relating. and We could just start connecting the dots. Here's some more from Saida Utejaniya. And I'll talk more about right effort uh, later in the retreat. He's talking about that here, I think. He says, I would like yogis, retreatants, to get to the point where they realize that without focusing or paying attention, the nature of knowing is happening. I would like the yogi, especially people who have been practicing for years, to just recognize that this is going on. Right? That knowing is happening. They are too busy thinking they are practicing. Does this sound familiar? They need to switch from doing to recognizing. And maybe you could even substitute the word remembering. They need to switch from doing to remembering or to recognizing. They are too busy thinking they are practicing. And this is what I meant, you know, we've got such a deep imprint in the mind that the basic activity of life is to struggle and then in struggling to make things happen the way we want them to happen. And whenever there's a little relief from struggling, we tend to look around in a sense in our life and look for what the next appropriate struggle should be. (laughs) What should be fixed next? What should be gotten rid of next? What's the next project? So another possibility is to be interested in freedom. So when we look at difficulty, it's not so much that we're interested in difficulty, but we're interested in the release from that difficulty. It's subtle, but it's really an important difference. It's, the emphasis is on freedom. Like a lot of people misunderstand this about Buddhism because he leads with, there is dukkha. You know, that's his first teaching. Some of you know the first Dharma talk he gave, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion. This, uh, you know, the first noble truth is there is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. These are the insights in that first noble truth, recognizing it, recognizing it's relevant, recognizing that the heart or the mind has opened to it, not afraid of it, seeing it clearly. But the whole point, of course, is to be free. It's not just about being honest for the sake of being honest. It's about understanding the connection between seeing clearly our subjective experience of dukkha and being free from it. There's no freedom from dukkha without understanding it. Or as the Buddha once said at a different talk, it's the not understanding dukkha that is the cause for dukkha. It's like the not wanting to look at it, not wanting to relax with it, not wanting to let it arise in the space of awareness. So the knowing is relatively pure So that the dukkha, when it arises in the space or the field of knowing, awareness, is as it actually is. Because the knowing mind isn't, doesn't have any, what do they say, skin in the game. You know, it it isn't trying to make anything happen, make the experience of dukkha, stress, fit what we think it is. But it's just letting it be what it is. So you see why there's an emphasis on knowing, because it takes a lot of trust, a lot of faith, to let life present itself as it is. Because we're we're pretty sure that I personally, as an egoic being, have to deal with suffering. And that's exactly what causes the problem. We approach suffering. It's not that we don't care about suffering. We do care about it. We really want to be done with it. But we always approach it in the same way. Like, I have to do something about it. As opposed to, how best to understand this experience? How best to get really clear? Well, I have to let go at least for a while, I have to let go of thinking I know what to do, thinking that I should do something. I have to let go of any agenda. I have to uncover this knowing that's simple and clear and relaxed, non-reactive and continuous. That's the key. Because the insight into dukkha or anything comes from that continuity because when there's a continuity of knowing, of that balanced knowing, mindful awareness, then we see the dukkha, the stress, or any activity of experience, we see it as a process. It's a process. It's not self. It comes and goes lawfully. And see, that transforms how we tend to relate to it. Doesn't mean it isn't real. It doesn't, it just means it isn't personal in the way that the mind had previously assumed. So two things happen. There's an immediate release of not taking it personally, and there's a real increase in skill because in not taking it personally, and seeing that dynamic as a natural process, a lawful process, well then the mind better understands, although limited, how it can participate in that unfolding process. Like, leaving alone might have a profound effect on how that particular dynamic, psychological dynamic, is going to unfold. Then not taking it personally might be the most powerful intervention. Like, if you have this hugely conditioned pattern in your mind to be defensive or to be insecure, right from a personal point of view, it might seem that we need some pretty serious interventions, like a really good therapist, not just a ordinarily good therapist, but somebody who can really understand our mind and 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 really. Enough time so that I can explain my whole past so they really get how this whole thing got set in motion. So that they'll be able to discern better how to help me figure this out, untangle this tangle. You know, and I need to get my diet together because the fact that I'm, my diet is so off, you know, I just don't have as much clarity as I'll need. And I have, You know, you just go on and on like this in order to take care of it. But in that, uh, in moments with some continuity of awareness of seeing that that pattern of insecurity is nature, not self, it takes the charge away. So, I mean, one of the things that's directly experienced is it's okay. It's not that it's not unpleasant. Being insecure probably will always be unpleasant. But it's okay that it's unpleasant. It's not personal. It's unpleasant. It happens due to causes and conditions. Can that be okay? Well, yeah, that could be okay. The mind, wisdom, can make space for that. So then, how the mind works with that pattern of being insecure isn't charged with a sense of desperation. This has to go away. This is not okay. So there's just so much more skill how we work with things. You know, it's the same thing if you have a disobedient child or a difficult work relationship. Or, you know, if it's personal, it really is hard to be skillful. But if you have some space around it, there may be some discomfort, but it doesn't feel very personal. It just feels like this person's doing the best they can, but they've got some, they've got some stuff and it's being acted out and I'm the recipient. I'm on the receiving end, but it isn't personal. I don't have to personally get tight about what's arising in my experience. It's just so much easier to decide to be nimble and creative in how we respond to that person, what we do with that person. Some more from Saida Utejaniya, he says, the object of attention is not really important. The observing mind that is working in the background to be aware is of real importance. I remember a real turning point in my practice, I think it was my first three-month retreat, and for the first six weeks I was uh, interviewing with uh, Stephen Smith, one of the formerly one of the IMS teachers, and um, I remember one interview, he just said to me, mindfulness doesn't care what's being known. It doesn't matter what is being known. The object of attention is not really important. The observing mind that is working in the background to be aware is of real importance. Just consider what that means for something like mindfulness of breathing or mindfulness of walking, or mindfulness of hearing, or mindfulness of seeing the big space over the lake. Some of you have been meditating outside by the lake, it can be really skillful to do that. So it's so easy, you know, seeing a beautiful sunset or a beautiful lake or beautiful clouds. It's you might notice that part of the mind that's trying to or get something from the objects that it's seen. So, from this information you're getting, from the Buddha, from Sadhu Tejaniya, from me, you know, we get this good information from our teachers (coughs) and then we want to play with it. So then, sitting, observing the breath, coming in, observing the breath, going out or Observing the pleasant view, or observing the physicality of walking, get interested in is being known. This experience is being known. So it's not, it's not, not mindfulness of breathing, right? It's just that the mind is understanding that the activity, the process of breathing, the process of walking, The process of seeing, the process of hearing, is a skillful means to get to know the process of knowing, and how that is, and what that is. Can we get interested in the process of knowing, like even now? The mind tends to, at least my mind, tends to throw up a lot of fluff, a lot of unpleasant fluff when we turn toward the knowing. It's, I think in The Wizard of Oz, the author, I don't know if it was in the book, that scene where the wizard is behind the curtain, but it's such an archetypal moment that still reverberates today. There's something so true about the wizard saying, pay no attention to that guy behind the curtain. Some of you may not remember the scene, but the big constructed, you know, manufactured wizard is smoke and flames and loud voice, but it's just an old guy behind a curtain with some technology and then Toto, I'm not giving anything away, pulls the curtain back, <laughs> and Dorothy sees what's going on. And this is the thing. It's not that, and this is really important because in different spiritual traditions this is understood differently. I won't say misunderstood, but understood differently than how the Buddha understands it. It's The Buddha's not saying that this knowing, this pure knowing is our true self or is the experience of freedom or enlightenment or the soul. He's simply saying that freedom comes from seeing things as they are. And as long as we're misunderstanding knowing by not really seeing it as it is, then the whole game is off. The seeing, the knowing, the experiencing is being misconstrued. So we're cultivating this understanding of knowing objects or being known in order to correct what is the activity of misperceiving or misconstruing. And then things become clear and letting go happens. And all of that, the Buddha would say, is a natural process. So the whole enlightening process or awakening process isn't one of self-discovery. It's a, it's a process of letting go of what was never true to begin with, but was rather misconstrued or constructed because of this um, misalignment, knowing wasn't pure or clean. It was off. And so being off, things had the appearance of being something they're in fact not. And because things like this, my subjective experience, had the appearance of being something that it's not, all of the activity of this was based on that misappearance or that misperception. And so it also was off. My activity of life is off. Everything's off. He says, Saida says, don't practice with a mind that wants something or wants something to happen. The results will only be that you tire yourself out. Don't practice with a mind that wants something or wants something to happen. The results will only be that you tire yourself out. And uh, some of you have already read those books that Gabe put out. And uh, this is a comment, a point that Saida Utejaniya makes all the time. He says something like, if you're getting tired before the end of the day, it's because your effort is off. You're trying too hard. We're looking for a continuity of awareness that doesn't take a lot of effort. It's just the effort of remembering that knowing is happening, that objects are being known. It's The hard part is trusting that, that that's the only effort that needs to be made. It's like, I'm so sure that I have to do something. And it's true. It's very easy to space out. Like I just took a walk before the talk tonight, and, uh, you know, it's, there, there was that intention to be mindful, you know, to simply know that objects are being known, That walking is being known, and thinking is being known, and this is being known. But it it doesn't take long, of course, before the mind gets absorbed, caught up, in the objects that are being known. Taking them personally, personally feeling, i got to get to the bottom of this stream of thought, get to some conclusion. But, of course, one thought always leads to the next one. A little bit of analysis always leads to something else that needs to be analyzed or thought through or compared to or judged. or, And then even when we do come to, so to speak, and we realize what we've been up to, what the mind has been up to, we tend to overshoot because that tends to trigger, okay, now I'm going to practice. But then we use that wrong effort. Okay, be with your feet. And it's really, now, I mean, now I'm pretty good at catching, like, how off that is, that sort of stern, drill sergeant-like attitude, you know. Bad boy. Do what you're told. And, uh, at least for a moment to be aware that that's just being known. It's just that, being known, that tendency, you know, of wanting to do it right. Wanting to be a good meditator. So the only problem with the practice is it's subtle. And that's not a small problem. It is subtle. It's subtle because so much of our, the activity of our life is this more gross, give me a problem to solve, give me a project to do, give me something to fix, give me something to judge, give me something to compare, to figure out. So part of retreating is cultivating a taste for what's more refined. You know, that's why we don't sing and dance and, uh, talk loud. It's like we're, we're respecting, it's not like those things are inherently bad, they're not, but we're respecting that, uh, that what we're trying to do is refine, refined or subtle we're trying to remember that things are being known, that this knowing is a natural process, and that in recognizing that things are being known and observing the knowing mind, observing that things are being known, or as that uh, person said the other, I think maybe this morning I read it, be knowingly the presence of awareness. So that's self-reflecting. Be knowingly the presence of awareness. We're not forgetting this ongoing knowing. We're aware of the ongoing knowing that things are being known. Then things start to get clear. Saita says you have to accept and watch both good and bad experiences. You want only good experiences. You don't even want the tiniest, unpleasant experience. Is this reasonable? Is this the way of Dhamma? So I'll end with a quote from Wendell Berry. He's a wonderful uh, naturalist and wise person, poet. So he's got a lot of his poems have things to do with the wilderness, as does this one. He's really talking about this transition from our more gross way of being to something that's more subtle. Always in the big woods, when you leave familiar ground and step off alone, into a new place, there will be, along with the feelings of curiosity and excitement, a little nagging of dread. It is the ancient fear of the unknown, and it is your first bond with the wilderness you are going into. What you are doing is exploring. You are undertaking the first experience, not of the place but of yourself in that place. Now that's a really neat little turning he did there. And this is about the subjective experiencing. So he says, it is the ancient fear of the unknown and it is your first bond with the wilderness you are going into. What you are doing is exploring. You are undertaking the first experience, not of the place, but of yourself in that place. It is an experience of our essential loneliness, for nobody can discover the world for anybody else. It is only after we have discovered it for ourselves that it becomes a common ground and a common bond and we cease to be alone. So let's just sit for a few moments, let go of the words.